Jeremy, your hair is looking majestic right now. I just want you to know that. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Aw. See, doesn't that feel good? It feels good to me. I feel dead inside. (laughs) (laughs) I feel nothing. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman. Flawless intro, Sean Hartman. It felt good. It felt good. I think I'm getting the hang of it. I'm starting to second guess myself every time now, thanks to uh, one of the co-hosts on this show. Peter looks very calm right now. (laughs) I think he like, yeah, you induced a zen upon him. Okay. Well, let me fully introduce this stoic, zen-ass host over here. He just so happens to be a aughts indie sellout eyewitness, Peter Cook. I saw them do that. They sold out. Never forget. And then we also have uh, MC Hammer liquidation joke archivist, Jeremy Ruggles. I get you what you need. Cheap. (laughs) Oh my, oh my. Peter. I think you're going to lead us on this journey of a podcast that's not about journey. Who is it about? It's not about journey. It is about the singer-songwriter, activist, Phil Oaks. Okay, and just to clarify, you did double-check before we hit record the exact pronunciation of his name. Yeah, and the internet told me that it's Phil Oaks or Phil Ox. <laughs> so are we, are we just going to interchange it throughout this episode to cover all our bases exactly yeah i'm gonna go with phil oaks if it happens to be ox i apologize to you oxaholics out there <laughs> oh my god i'm gonna go ahead and say that it's actually phil o'shea's <laughs> there you go phil o'shea's he's fancy <laughs> the fbi had a big file on him and they misspelled it o-a-k-e-s so i'm guessing it's probably oaks well if it's good enough for the fbi then it's good enough for me it's good enough for i'd buy that podcast hi fbi <laughs> we are all amy klobuchar supporters please do not start a file on us <laughs> So, with the album that I brought is called Greatest Hits. Whoa. We have established as a rule on this podcast because we love rules and law and order in general. Yeah, the FBI, obviously. (laughs) That we're not going to do any compilation albums. So, what are you doing with this? Well, I would like to act like I'm really shocked and removed and going to have to find an alternative. But it just so happens, Sean... That Phil Oaks is a bit of a prankster. Ooh. He was maybe uh, pulling the music industry's leg by releasing an album called Greatest Hits, which is in fact all original material to this album, not hit songs. He didn't really have hits. Phil Oaks, he has a few well-known protest songs and topical songs, but mm-hmm. he was not a hit songwriter by right, any means. Right. Yeah, this was released in 1970 on AM. The copy that we're going to be listening today to today is a pickwick reissue from 1980 yeah the wonderful pickwick records and thanks to pickwick i had to i was using the digital version of this on spotify to kind of get it all together while i was 
planning things and then noticed that when I went to my LP copy and listened to it, that the second side is com- completely different order and one of the songs is omitted. I mean, yeah. you, you said that Pickwick were notorious for stuff like this. In, in what I've seen from just looking at a lot of records, I haven't done any real reading up on what the story of Pickwick records was, but they were definitely a budget label. A lot of their stuff was compilations, sometimes poor quality recordings and material used and just kind of looking for quick cash grabs on popular artists. And sometimes it's compilations made to look like a real album. Sometimes it's real albums. And I have noticed that a lot of times the albums will be missing tracks or have slightly different track listings in the official release. And I don't know if that's they just like were too cheap to get all the rights for every song or what the deal was it's there. But strange that in 1980 they were like, okay, Phil Oak's greatest hits, but they probably thought it was an actual greatest hits. Yeah, there's there's too. some meat on the bone there. We can cash in. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and listen to the first track on this album before we talk any more about it. It's called One Way Ticket Home. I like one way ticket home. I can watch my television talk on the telephone In every town I wander there's a billboard on a throne Ticket home, I want a ticket home Ticket home, I want a ticket home Does anybody know my name or recognize my face? Must have come from somewhere, but I can't recall the place. They dropped me at the matinee, they left without a trace. Ticket home, home, I want a ticket home. Elvis Presley is the king, I was at his crowning. My life just flashed before my eyes. Well, that was not what I was expecting. Same. Uh, the few things I've heard, like you said, kind of more stripped down protest folk songs. And that was some interesting folk rock elements going on with some interesting arrangements and strings going on and everything. Yeah. It's, what's the deal? Yeah. It's not what I expected when I first put this album on after purchasing it either. I was expecting the more strip, the more stripped down protest songs mm-hmm. that I knew of his This was his final album. This was Phil Oak's final album. As I said, it was 1970. And it's not another folky-ass record that I'm bringing today, (laughs) despite the notoriety of the performer. This was produced by Van Dyke Parks. Oh. If that explains. right. (laughs) Yeah. Are you familiar with Van Dyke Parks, Jeremy? I know that name, and I know people who dig underground stuff love that dude. I don't really know what his deal was. I know when I listened to that just now, the choruses and like the end of that clip we just played felt very like cluttered and kind of poorly arranged to me to the extent that I was wondering if that was intentional. It might be Van Dyke Parks. Some of his stuff, I would say, is known for being very... Some of the arrangements on his stuff are... He has an album called Song Cycle, that's very almost like deliberately jarring. 
mm-hmm. often kind of grandiose, but can also be almost like so many things going on. You don't know what to necessarily focus on. Is that kind of how you felt? Like, yeah, he, he did a lot of commercial work, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of the solo work and work he did for other people is viewed as like the dark side of the cheesy popular commercial music. It's like, he's taking that medium and twisting it. Yeah. Most notoriously, he worked with Brian Wilson on Smile, the abandoned Beach Boys album that they completed in the 2000s. Yeah. Yeah, it left me wondering if it was like the same way he titled it, Greatest Hits, if it was meant to be sort of like a musical like jab at the like over-the-top stringy stuff. Yeah, no, I think or they could be like meant to be that way intentionally. There's a feeling on this record, we'll talk more about it, but it, it almost feels like Phil Oaks is calling back a lot of music from the time of his childhood through sort of the era that he was relevant. Touching on a lot of it throughout this album, we'll hear some different styles as we go. Van Dyke Parks, yeah, he also worked more recently with like Joanna Newsom. And Harry Nilsson was another one of the people, Randy New- Randy Newman. A couple other players that we'll mention on that song. The mandolin that was in there was Ry Cooter. Oh. And the backing vocalists, the, w- the women singing in the background, were Mary Clayton. Ooh. Yeah. Shirley Matthews and Clyde King. I don't know the other two. Okay, yeah. So Mary Clayton is the best known as the other vocalist on the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter. Yes. (laughs) And she has a very prominent scene in the 20 Feet from Stardom documentary. Five feet, eight (laughs) feet. Some distance from stardom. Not many feet from stardom. (laughs) Yeah, where she talks about recording that song. And I think she's probably fairly well known as far as like session singers, backing singers. Like her name's probably one of the... And her solo work is really, really good. So I was going to say, I saw that she has a number of solo albums, and I can't say I've ever listened to them. They're hard to find, but they're excellent. Shirley Matthews was a friend of Frank Wilson of Motown, and she produced recordings for them as well as the was the backing vocalist on like hundreds of songs, like "Staying Alive" by the Bee Gees, <laughs> <laughs> with a little help from my friends by Joe Cocker. Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner. You're No Good by Linda Ronstadt. That's how I ended up sending you that clip of uh, okay. uh, live. She was in there. She was one of the backing vocalists oh. that I sent you that clip of last night with Linda Ronstadt's smoking band that she yeah. had. <laughs> I love that live Just version. Just an of example that. of how deep Peter goes on the research. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's committed, folks. He really cares. <laughs> I'm going to be bringing some Linda Ronstadt at some point. We should definitely we touch to, on yeah. Linda Ronstadt because she has some great stuff. And there's... Probably a lot of interesting stories in there. I think she's responsible for the Eagles forming. Huh. Uh, like, they were the backing band on one of her albums, I think. Yeah. Clyde King, the other backing vocalist on this track, just passed away last year. And she worked a lot with Bob Dylan. And he actually considered her his soulmate. He huh. referred to her that way. Joan Baez is pissed somewhere right about now. <laughs> she worked with Ray Charles and Humble Pie as well. So these are there's a lot of big, heavy hitters playing on this album yeah that and we'll talk about a few other examples later there was a line in there elvis presley is the king i was at his crowning uh and on the back of this album you'll notice like the cover you kind of get a little bit of an elvis vibe from Mm -hmm. that on the back you'll see it says 50 phil oaks fans can't be wrong (laughs) (laughs) so he's clearly mocking this whole greatest hits thing oh yeah but i don't think he's necessarily mocking elvis i think there's a lot of 50s hero worship happening on this record which is funny because you know like we've said phil oaks you think of him as the protest very political songwriter and that is largely absent 
from this album. You Notice know, the, the difference in uh, album covers is pretty huge. I mean, the, the stuff I'm more familiar with, you know, he's like sitting on a dock by himself with his acoustic guitar, just yeah. a real loner, real dark, mysterious guy. And now he's all like goofy and showy on this one. Yeah, that's a that's a nudie suit, as they call those, <laughs> the, that, which was El- the designer of Elvis's suits. Mm-hmm. As a teenager, Oakes had been a renowned clarinet player and performed classical music as a principal soloist at the Capitol Universal Conservatory of Music in Ohio. But he was drawn to the sounds he was hearing on the radio, like Buddy Holly, Elvis Presley, Farron Young, Ernest Tubb, Hank Williams. So rock and roll and country were what he cut his teeth on hmm. largely, even though he was like classically trained. And he also spent a lot of time at the movies and really looked up to people like John Wayne, Marlon Brando, and James Dean. Which leads me into the second song that I'd like to play. It is Jim Dean of Indiana. And that is side one track two, Jeremy. This is going to be a totally different direction from that first one. Bring it. That's one that you would have to sit and listen to the whole song to fully appreciate. And we don't do that here, right? We, we don't do the full songs. We legally cannot. Yeah. But it doesn't really focus, for, I'll tell you, I'll give you the synopsis, is it doesn't really focus on James Dean as the larger than life actor, but the rural place where he grew up and the people who raised him. So it kind of humanizes Dean while still idolizing him. The latter half of the song, which we didn't hear, deals with Dean's death, but heard over the radio by his adoptive family. And Oakes was obviously, as we mentioned, this is one of his idols. 
And he says at the end that he, you know, laid flowers to rest where James Dean was buried. And death hovers over much of this album, not in the way that some other final albums by artists who committed suicide do, such as Joy Division's Closer, Kurt Cobain, Nirvana's In Utero, or even more recently, David Berman, Purple Mountains, which was a devastating record even before he passed away. True. That was the first, uh, like, when a music person dies and people get real sad, and I, like, like, well... We didn't actually know them, but Purple Mountains, that one hit me like, it hit me hard. Yeah. Yeah, I think it did for a lot of people. It was actually, there were more David Berman fans out there than I realized until the outpouring happened afterwards. So as far as Oaks goes, yeah, there's a lot of nostalgia looking back, you know, not only on the, the kind of the time of his childhood, the 50s. There's a song called A Boy in Ohio, which was, he. They moved, his family moved around a lot, but that's largely where they settled. It's not a political album. There is one political song on it that's stitched together from a few different live performances. It runs like two minutes long. It's called Ten Cents a Coup, and it's not on this reissue. That's the one they left off of Side B. It's really strange that that's the one. I don't know why it was even on there. It's it's like three different live performances, him talking and then going into a little ditty. And with Oaks, sometimes his political stuff definitely leaned in that comedy reaction of the audience it's definitely almost feels like the punchlines set up in the songs like there's their commentary but they're also you know comedic other times they're much more serious the one that was on this album is much more funny hmm. but we're not going to hear it because pickwick is too cheap to afford the rights to that one apparently <laughs> <laughs> he is a musician of course was known as a protest singer he actually liked the being called a topical song writer topical singer Bob Dylan, I, I always see him in interviews. I'm not a topical singer. He was very <laughs> against that. Oaks embraced it. I don't think I ever heard Bob Dylan sound like that. <laughs> I was about to say that was a wonderful Bob Dylan impression. <laughs> I'm not a topical singer. Better, better. <laughs> well, guys, Bob Dylan's on the podcast. Welcome, Bob. <laughs> it's great to be here. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a topical singer. <laughs> yeah, that was the uh, ministry. Modern Bob cover of Lay Lady Lay or something. <laughs> Oaks had witnessed, uh, in recent times before this album came out, he had witnessed the police violence against protesters at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Of course, Oaks, yeah, largely his topics when singing were anti-Vietnam War and pro-civil rights. How much do you guys know about the whole 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago? Nothing. Nothing at all? There is much violence, and I believe the, I mean, it was primarily that they were trying to press Democrats into not being pro-war. Yeah, and it was largely that Johnson had announced that he wouldn't seek re-election, and so the purpose of the 68 convention, they were trying to select a new Democratic candidate, and Oaks actually was in support of Eugene McCarthy who was a more was mainstream a communist. No, <laughs> he was a more mainstream candidate than uh, a lot of his more radical friends would have liked and he uh, Oaks was involved with the Yippies. Do you know about the Yippies at all? The U the Youth International yeah. Party. Yep. They uh they're kind of radical American counterculture group. Some of their more famous members are Jerry Rubin, Abby Hoffman, his wife Anita Hoffman and uh, Paul Krasner. 
Any of these names familiar? Uh, Sean Dad. It feels good like knowing what he's talking about and you having no idea. The tables have the turned. The tables are fully turned right now. The, we're, we're learning about Jeremy. He's he's into politics more than music. M- wow. Harsh. <laughs> That's pretty unfair. Look, he's got a lot of records here. He's got a few. <laughs> he's trying. They're most political. They're mostly political records. Yeah. <laughs> the first time I ever heard of Jerry Rubin was in 1994 when he died. And, and uh, at the time, Norm MacDonald was the Weekend Update host on Saturday Night Live. And the, the joke began, Yippee, Jerry Rubin died this weekend. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. That was supposed to read, Yippee, Jerry Rubin died. <laughs> that was my introduction to the Yippies. Yeah. So Oaks was involved with them. And they were kind of, they were definitely like pranksters and activists. Sean, if you, I uh, don't mean to mention Forrest Gump too often, but the guy at the... Uh, <laughs> This is my frame of reference for all of American history. I have a degree in public history. The guy at the reflecting pool in the the scene where he's like, me a fucking name. That's Abby Hoffman of the Yippies that they're trying to caricature there. Yeah, as I said, the Oaks actually supported Eugene McCarthy. He was a more mainstream candidate, but he was with the Yippies, so he was going to help them out nonetheless and helped organize the Festival of Life outside the proceedings of the convention in August of 68 and purchased a 145 pound pig from a farmer and they named it Pigasus. And in the protests leading oh, up, you, yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> they, they, uh, the Yippies announced Pigasus's candidacy for president of the United States. You, you know of this, Jeremy? Yeah. <laughs> Oaks, Jerry Rubin, and several others got arrested and they were charged with disorderly conduct, disturbing the, the peace, and bringing a pig to Chicago, which apparently there was an old law about bringing livestock into the city. Um, <laughs> the pig was also arrested with them. And while they were waiting in the jail cell to post bond, a police officer informed the Yippies that they were all going to jail for life because the pig had squealed on them. And this really, this really did happen. The guy said that, and it even got. It's even in the transcripts of the Chicago Seven trial when Oaks is on the stand. They're like, "Were you informed that an off, by an officer that the pig had squealed on you?" And people are like, "Objection!" Like, it's it like so the Yippies really prevailed in like kind of making a mockery of some of this, you know, mm-hmm. they got out on $25 bonds a piece. So wasn't too big a deal. Oak still performed at the festival, the festival of life, but not many others did who were scheduled. The MC five were the only scheduled rock band to perform. That's where I first heard about it in uh, the please kill me, the punk oral history book. They talk all about being there and playing. I think they played for a long time too. Neil Young was actually the only other scheduled rock performer who showed up so that uh, he didn't actually perform. Both the protests and the convention were a mess. There was riots, police violence. The Senate, like people were punching each other up on the floor. LBJ's vice president, Hubert Humphrey, got the Democratic nomination and, of course, lost to Nixon. So the events of 1968 profoundly had a negative impact on Phil Oak's state of mind because there was not only that, his experience with that, but there had been the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. And so 68 was just a pretty traumatic year for, especially if you've been fighting really hard for a really long time. The uh, tombstone on his album before this one, his 1960 album, 1969 album, Rehearsals for Retirement, it featured a tombstone on the cover of the album. And it said, uh, Phil Oaks, American, born El Paso, Texas, 1940, died Chicago, Illinois, 1968. 
that's what he's putting on his album covers hmm. at this point in his career. So he was really feeling it hard. Let's go ahead, Jeremy, and listen to Chords of Fame, which is on side two, track two on the Pickwick reissue. <laughs> A lot of name dropping for Pickwick on this episode. Yeah. <laughs> I should probably stop. Don't give them too much. Breathing his last breath A bottle of gin and a cigarette Was all that he had left I can see you make music Cause you carry your guitar But God help the troubadour Who tries to be a star That took a hard turn into Graham Parsons territory. I was not expecting that. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't have seen that coming. I definitely didn't either. There is no indication on any previous Phil Oaks album that he would be leaning into country rock. Yeah. But you had said he was influenced by country from a young age, right? So absolutely. And probably a lot of the same stuff that uh, Graham Parsons grew up listening to. Yeah. I would dig like a whole album of stuff of that vibe, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, and there's probably a reason that it sounds so similar to Graham Parsons. Uh, I mean, I think his voice alone sounded very similar there, but some of the players on this album, beyond the people we mentioned earlier, uh, Clarence White is on guitar, as well as backing vocals. Uh, He was a session player for Joe Cocker, the Everly Brothers, Ricky Nelson, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, Randy Newman, Gene Clark, and he's considered to be a country rock pioneer. He also had a band called the Kentucky Colonels that are supposed to be of some note in the bluegrass sphere. On bass is Chris Etheridge, who was in the International Submarine Band and the Flying Burrito Brothers and co-wrote Hot Burrito Number 1 and 2 with Graham Parsons. There you go. And fathered (laughs) Melissa Etheridge? Yeah. Wait, actually? No. (laughs) Not to my knowledge. On drums is Gene Parsons, not to be confused or no relation to Graham Parsons, but he was in The Birds uh, with Clarence White uh, and later the Flying Burrito Brothers. And fathered Alan Parsons? Yes, indeed. (laughs) You know it all. Some of the other players that are on here, I I didn't go into all their backgrounds. James Burton, Bob Rifkin, Lincoln Mayorga. They're all people that have just, they've worked with, all those groups and a lot of those country rock pioneer groups and yeah, the birds and flying burrito brothers names keep coming up and a lot of the others. So. Uh, Lincoln Mayorga is on a lot of jazz related stuff too. Is he? Yeah. That's where I'm familiar with that name from. So 
a variety of backgrounds on the players to give you a variety of sounds on the record. That's yeah. I was going to say that there's a really wide variety of sounds on this record. So it makes sense that he, if he's got people that have a wide variety of backgrounds, his uh, direction really changed after the events of 68. He was convinced that most Americans really weren't listening to topical songs anymore. He was probably right <laughs> to some extent. I, I don't know if you really think about sixties protest music after 67, 68, Dylan wasn't doing that stuff yeah. anymore. I'd, well, I don't know what, I mean, maybe like Seeger and some of those guys were still hitting that, but I don't really know. I don't know enough about the trajectory of those guys' careers at that point. I mean, nothing comes to mind as like a purely topical protest song. I mean, it seemed like there was more just a general like rebellious attitude yeah. with some of the stuff that was happening, but nothing on the more like intellectual side of rebellion. Exactly. And that's largely what he had been. His stuff had been very direct. You know, in, in, in some ways, actually, I think that the stuff that isn't as topical for him has aged better because it's not so specific to some circumstance mm. or time period. I mean, some of those things are more universal truths, that he, but a lot of them are like these really specific references that, the, you know, like the live performances, the audience laughs. And I'm like, I don't get that because I'm not from that era. <laughs> it's you weren't around that week or something. He thought reverting to playing the music he had enjoyed as a teenager would speak more directly to the American public, and he shifted towards country and rock and roll. The actual quote of like the direction he wanted to take was part Elvis and part Che Guevara. <laughs> <laughs> so as you can see, we mentioned earlier the uh, gold lame nudie suit uh, designed by Nudie Cone, Elvis's suit designer. He donned that and went out on tour, and yeah, he he played this kind of mixture. He played his originals as well as a lot of old throwbacks by like Buddy Holly, Elvis, Merle Haggard on tour. And it definitely polarized his audience. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we know, the, uh, the hardcore folk audience was not very accepting of change with their beloved performers. Yeah. It's a purist genre for sure. And so, yeah, it's people, I think that he, because the songs were still really good and he had a, like a hot backing band with him that he actually could, often win over audiences by the end of, of, of a performance after initially them kind of being like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, he started to decline into drug and alcohol abuse and slipped further into depression, uh, which he'd always struggled with. But after about this, the time of this album, he really started to struggle with writer's block. And he, I think he put out a handful of songs, no, no more full length albums after this though. And he was alive for six more years after this album. So, yeah, hmm. let's go ahead and at this point, listen to the song No More Songs, which is side two, track three. Oh 
be found in the magazines And it seems that there are no more songs Once I knew a saint who sang upon the stage He told about the world his lover A ghost without a name Stands ragged in the rain And it seems that there are no more songs felt like it was foreshadowing he seemed aware well okay we'll we'll go here with it i feel like in you said this is 1970 came out in 70 i think it was recorded late 69 but yeah yeah and by that time the folkies and hippies who were true believers their whole culture had been sold out. Like by the time Woodstock came around, none of those people believed in any of it anymore. Well, I think, and then especially like Altamont a yeah. few months later, the and, death of the sixties. Yeah. Yeah. So this is right around that same time that that was yeah. going on. And I think he saw the writing on the wall. Like he tried to change directions, but it seems like there's a, a dark hole where, all his political songs used to come from and the hope was just gone. Yeah. And obviously I were probably well aware of the kind of narrative of the way the United States late 20th century history went is that the sixties dream, the hippie dream died and turned into a lot of those people were accepting and embracing of the Reagan era when that came along now that they were in their thirties, forties and fifties, by that point in time, like they'd given so much, put so much into the causes they were behind and just felt like they got nowhere with it. And so, you know, the eighties came along, they were ready, willing, and able to just accept something completely different. That was in contrast that clashed with their former beliefs. Well, and that a lot of people involved in the hippie movement, it turned out were just in it for very selfish, self, like self-focused reasons. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. they didn't really believe in the, mass cultural change or trying to improve anyone else's life. It was kind of a self-liberation at others' expense. And that ju- the excess of that just seemed to continue and grow and get uglier as time went on. Oh, were you there, Sean? I've just, I've seen documentaries. <laughs> I think that's with Oaks, with Phil Oaks. That's what's interesting is that he wasn't in it for himself. He really seemed to believe in what he was, you know, the things that he was singing about, the things he was fighting for. Not, I can't say that of many other protest singers that they were as active as he was in these stories of him being there, getting arrested, buying the pig to <laughs> Pegasus. <laughs> you know, like he's really, he was there and he did it. And I don't think he, when that part of him died, 
he wasn't going to compromise or become something else. Unfortunately, there were other contributing factors, but it's really interesting as someone who kind of got into studying history because of my interest in music history. And when I returned to school, finding that it helped provide context for older music, understanding what was happening in the world at that time. And a lot of times the music, while it might be commenting on that, did feel like kind of a separate thing. But the more I'm learning about Phil Oaks, like, no, he was there. <laughs> he was he was involved in these things. As the 70s progressed, his drinking worsened. And he really started to scare his friends with drunken rants about the uh, CIA and the FBI coming after him. And eventually... But they were, though, right? Yeah, he was not mistaken. <laughs> these were not unfounded paranoias. Eventually, around uh, mid-1975, he took on a completely different persona and began identifying as John Butler Train. He always carried a weapon with him at all times. His younger brother, Michael, who was his manager and a rock music photographic archivist, tried to have him committed to a psychiatric hospital. He ended up living on the streets and he was in bar fights all the time. Like, he was not well. But after a while, John Butler train faded, and when Oakes returned, he spoke of suicide often, so he was disturbing those around him still. And in early 76, he moved to Far Rockaway, Queens, where his sister lived. He had actually lived there briefly as a youngster when his family moved around. His sister, Sonny, helped him uh, find a psychiatrist who diagnosed Oakes with bipolar disorder, which his father had suffered from as well. And he was he was pretty lethargic uh, the time that he spent with her. He basically the only activities he seemed interested in were watching television and playing cards with his nephews. And on April 9th, 1976, at Sonny's home, his sister Sonny's home in Far Rockaway, Queens, New York, he committed suicide by hanging himself. And it was as I mentioned earlier, and, and Jeremy just said, uh, a few years after his death, it was revealed that the FBI had almost 500 pages on him. They really saw him as a threat. And I think that's like the J. Edgar Hoover era of the FBI that he would have been involved in all that. So, yeah, he's a really fascinating figure. I I wouldn't call him obscure. I, I think in the folk world, he's pretty well respected. I don't know how familiar with were either of you with his music coming into this. I'd yeah, I'd heard it before. He I mean, he had a pretty big song with I Ain't Marching No More yeah. anymore. I ain't marching anymore, I think, yeah. Yeah. I don't feel like he caught on though because his voice is kinda weird and not great, but Bob Dylan's voice wasn't great either. But Yeah, I have to think a lot of the folk artists really that's i guess that wasn't really the center the, the focal point of what they were doing i mean for me like on this album in, in particular i love his voice on it of course i like weird voices that aren't necessarily pleasing but uh especially when he's starting to sound i wish i'd heard more uh, that he'd explored more of the country direction because i really like absolutely yeah. no yeah. that's what that's what i was thinking i've i've come across phil oaks records before and bought him because i knew he was you know a notable player and gave it a little bit of a listen, wasn't really that interested, and I think sold it off. But um, I liked this a lot more than the stuff I remember hearing of his more stripped-down work. And I, I agree, his voice works really well in that country rock setting, and it would have been interesting to hear a full album of that material. Yeah, I can't say I found anything that indicated he was going to go in that direction in the 
earlier albums that I've checked out. The, 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 his last few albums are really worth uh, listening to. I think they've aged better than his his uh, protest folk stuff, honestly. That's really uh, interesting. So I would like to uh, for us to go out on a more upbeat cut. The, 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 we talked about the 50s nostalgia stuff. And uh, the song's called My Kingdom for a Car. It's on side one, Jeremy, track three. So I I think that's about all for this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar, though. Uh, anyone, anyone got anything else to add about uh, collecting records? We, yeah, keep doing it. <laughs> keep collecting those records. Keep doing it. Keep coming <laughs> back for more episodes of the show. Yeah. And uh, yes. really look out for the Pickwick ones. Yeah. <laughs> that's where the gold is. <laughs> Pickwick. Grab up Pickwick Records at Pickwick Records on Instagram. No, I don't. Yeah. They're probably not on. <laughs> so, all right. Yeah, My Kingdom for a Car is what we're going to go out on. Uh, this has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. And my name is Jeremy Ruggles. Bye. Oh. Well, thanks for listening to another fine episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I was just thinking it's kind of weird. We just said goodbye. We didn't move. And now I'm expected to act like it's a whole different setting that I'm recording this outro. It's almost weird saying goodbye knowing that I'm not actually leaving and going to just talk again. It's weird. Is it just me? It seems weird. I guess we're going to get to hear this whole song underneath you talking. (laughs) It's a good song. Why not? Yeah, talk about saying goodbye more okay well okay there's a couple things uh we have our first ever live episode coming up march 27th right here in kalamazoo michigan where we're from at uh green door distillery doors open at seven show starts at eight it's free 18 plus is the age limit hopefully we'll see you there and also we would love it if you would support us on our patreon you can find that at patreon.com slash i'd buy that podcast and uh thanks for listening there's premium content on there there's right? premium content stuff you can't find the more you here. spend the more you get you can get uh, episodes in advance we'll send you that private download link before it's made public there's special episodes you can only listen to if you're a five dollar a month or up subscriber and then uh if you give us even more money we'll mail you records every month it's pretty cool wow wow what a deal Well, bye. Well, goodbye again for the second time.